Hello, and welcome to Splash of Cinema Episode 3. Uh, today we're going to be covering A24 movies, uh, very successful production studio, especially uh, since 2010, they've pumped out crazy properties. I'm wearing my hat for the occasion, my A24 party hat. It's available on the A24 shop. Give it a look. Great shop. But we also have a special guest today, and I'm going to let John introduce him. So today we've brought on a, another film lover and Letterbox member and a, a big fan of A24 that's got me interested in a lot of their films and is going to spice up our discussion a little bit, my twin brother, William. So, William, thoughts? Oh, yes. Hello. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, as my twin brother said, um, I'm a movie lover. My favorite movies are Braveheart, Joker, American Beauty, Whiplash, and, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for more favorites. Uh, my brother really likes Thin Red Line. I have to see that. But anyways, let's get our discussion started. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you for joining us, Will. This is our first guest on Splash of Cinema, so congratulations. We're excited. We hope to bring on a variety of more guests as we go, but this is a good start. All right, so let's get into it. We got to bring up The Mandalorian, monumental episode. I'm talking monumental. So uh, chapter five, it was entitled The Jedi, directed by Dave Filoni, written by him as well. Uh, he's 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 been working with Favreau throughout the series, but he is heavily involved with The Mandalorian, uh, it, as well as this animated Star Wars series, Star Wars Clone Wars and Rebels. And he created the character of Ahsoka Tano, and she was introduced in live action for the first time, played by Rosario Dawson. I freaked the fuck out. I don't know about you guys. It was a it was a whirlwind. Uh, personally, I didn't think it was like a monumental episode. The episode really, I thought there could have been a lot more flair to it for the whole like adding Ahsoka effect. They kind of brought her up like casually, like they did introduce her to open the episode, and but her interactions with the Mandalorian weren't. It didn't create the the spark that I was looking for. Nonetheless, the show has great production value and consistently produces good episodes, and this was just another example of that. Yeah, yeah. By monumental, I just meant by having Ahsoka be in live action. Like, it's just... In terms of Star Wars properties, like, the Clone Wars and Rebels, just how long those series are and how much content is in that, like, just her being in live action is just a huge step for Star Wars. And I can see a bunch more toys being sold and such. Yeah, I mean, off of that point, Pete, I, I do think to a degree this episode was certainly monumental when it came to plot development. Um, you know, I really enjoyed actually learning the child's name and a little bit of the child's background. Uh, it, it was refreshing to see, you know, Ahsoka introduced into the series as well, you know, so splendidly. I think it really pleased a lot of true Star Wars fans that have a lot of background knowledge of the universe before the show. Of course, we're all true Star Wars fans here, so I enjoyed it. Um, although I, I do hope that Mandalorian as a show doesn't get in the weeds with the whole Jedi thing. I think they need to tread that line pretty carefully. Uh, they can definitely get involved with the Force and stuff. I know the Mandalorians have a rich history with that, but if if we get... If we discover all these lost Jedi and get into that plot, it might just turn into like a prequel thing again. Yeah, yeah. As long as Ryan Johnson isn't on the, it's in, involved <laughs> with the Mandalorian, uh, I think we'll be good. I think we'll be good. He he needs to stick to like 
whodunit puzzle movies where he can manipulate the plot a lot and not, you know, destroy already established concepts. Rose was probably the worst character Star Wars has ever had. Like that was that was fucking terrible. Well, the actor got like hate. The actor got like hate pushed off of the Star Wars cast. Actually, should have. Actually, should have. That's enough Star Wars tangent there. Uh, so let's hop right into it. A twenty four today. We're going to be covering two directors as well as our new name for the shitty movie of the week. It's our fiery feces flick of the week. So we're going to be covering two directors. You will see as we reveal the movies who those are. They're really, really up-and-coming directors, and I'm so excited to see what they do. And the first film comes from a pair of them. It's our hidden gem of the week. It is Good Time. So Good Time is a 2017 film. The plot reads, After a botched bank robbery, Lance's younger brother in prison, Connie Nicholas embarks on a twisted odyssey through New York City's underworld to get his brother Nick out of jail. The directors are the Safdie brothers. Uh, they're two directors from New York. Uh, the writers are Ronald Bronstein and Josh Safdie, one of the Safdie brothers. And it's starring Robert Pattinson, Benny Safdie, and Jennifer Jason Lee. And it is available on Netflix. And it has been available for a while now. So thoughts on Good Time? Pete, my thoughts on Good Time, um, it, it is certainly, it puts the hidden in the hidden gem aspect of, of this uh, feature of our podcast in the sense that although uncut gems even which is the other safety brothers film that that received a little more acclaim was not a uh, highly publicized or didn't receive uh didn't receive love from the the academy good time is another great film from the safety brothers that a lot of people don't even realize was their their first film and a, it's a great performance from robert pattinson who who's a a big time up and coming actor. He's done a lot just this year alone. Um, and then on top of that, you have, you have this, this whole kind of cool, like psychologically thrilling, trippy kind of element to the, to the movie that a lot of stuff is missing. And I think is kind of a staple of the Safdie's directorial style. So it's, it's a perfect choice for our hidden gem of the week. And it comes from a 24 as a production company, which is willing to let directors like the Safdies experiment. So that's why it's our hidden gem. In reference to this movie specifically, I, I just love how the Safdie brothers are able to explore such a dark side of humanity in such an interesting and riveting way. And they do it in uncut gems as well, but they just find a way to show you some of the most disturbing elements of humanity you know, the actions of the characters in that movie are just psychotic in a lot of different ways, but they just deliver it with such stunning pace and maturity that, you know, truly makes you examine humanity. And you take a lot of meanings away from this film, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Robert Pattinson... I, I've talked to John about this, but I mean, we're on Robert Pattinson Benders. Uh, fil all film lovers all across the world are. He's been great in stuff that that's come up. Uh, the Lighthouse, it's just so much stuff. He's the new Batman, and I think this really did kick off the Robert Pattinson resurgence and his performance in Good Time, especially just because the character of Connie is someone who will do anything to 
to get back to his brother who was arrested in this movie played by Benny Safdie. He'll do anything to get back to him. And if that means committing heinous crimes, then he'll do it. I mean, the ending of this movie is fucking crazy. Yeah, on your point about Robert Pattinson, though, I think this film was kind of his, like, saving grace from the Twilight films, which kind of established him as a not-so-good actor, a, a teen flick-type actor. His willingness to take on roles in, in what I would consider to be indie films like this, at the time it was an indie film, now it's a little more popular, are what brought him back to the mainstream and what's allowed him to now be the next Batman and stuff like that. And the character of Connie Nikas in this film is a pretty one-dimensional character. He he only really has one goal, and he's despicable in 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 his pursuit at attempting that goal. But Pattinson gives it a depth, and and personally, I appreciated the accent he gives him. It, it just makes it feel so much more real. That uh, I don't know if really any other actor could do. This is one of those films that I think was like the perfect role for the actor that was cast. Yeah, I mean, you know, off of that point. I think Pattinson just does such a good job of conveying, you know, to the audience, a lot of respect and, you know, you have admiration for him, even though he really is kind of this anti-hero to a degree. Um, his pursuit to help his brother is very admirable. And, but, you know, as you see in the film, he is certainly misguided, but, you know, Pattinson does a good job of convincing us that this character isn't necessarily misguided, that a lot of his motivations are good. So that was good time, everybody. From the Safdie brothers, great pair of directors, and they followed it up in 2019 with a pairing with Adam Sandler in the movie Uncut Gems, which is described on IMDb as with his debts, with his debts mounting and angry collectors closing at a fast-talking New York City jeweler risks everything in the hope of staying afloat and alive. Sandler plays another one of the Safdie's classic characters, somewhat of a degenerate, uh, super greedy jeweler, uh, big into the gambling scene, and that winds him up in all sorts of trouble. Sandler did an excellent job in this performance, despite our uh, hatred of his performances in many of the uh, ridiculous movies on this podcast. We both love his performance in Uncut Gems, and it was maybe the biggest Oscar snub of 2019. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, this movie, you both know, I this was my favorite movie of 2019. I'm going to say it flat out. Uh, ever since I saw the trailer, uh, just that shot of going up to Sandler, and then he's walking, and then you see fucking Kevin Garnett. Uh, the film also stars Kevin Garnett, as well as Lakeith Stanfield. Uh and I saw that they were both in it, and I was like, holy shit. Like, they're, like, Lakeith Stanfield, if you haven't seen Atlanta, uh, that's on FX and also on Hulu. Atlanta is a crazy, crazy series, and Lakeith Stanfield really plays, like, this sort of, like, existential character in that. It, it, he's, he's really good. Uh, but Uncut Gems is available on Netflix. Another thing the Safties do is they provide tension, and you feel really, really tense and it kind of, the, the, their movies kind of cause anxiety uh, just because of the way they're paced and even the music as well. Uh, the music in Uncut Gems was done by Daniel Lopatin, who also did Good Time uh, under the name Oneothrix Point Never. Uh, that's his artist name. He's a New York underground electronic artist. And I mean, 
even the music in Uncut Gems, I've listened to that score a few times. It's it's super fast paced, super electronic, super anxiety inducing. And that really just sums up sums up the film. Like nothing good happens to our protagonist in this movie, yet you still kind of want him to succeed because he's kind of a family man. Like you see, you see him at home, you see him at his workplace, and then you see him with his girlfriend. He has a girlfriend in this movie, a performance by Julia Fox, who I thought this, her performance was really great in it. But yeah, Uncut Gems, just fucking great movie. I'm super biased towards it since it is like a sports and gambling movie and just like sports gambling I'm just so interested in. And the fact that they made a movie about it and a good movie about it just makes me so happy. Yeah, I mean, from the opening scene where they take you inside a colonoscopy to showing you the brutality of diamond mining in Africa, you know, to showing you the degenerate nature of a lot of these sports gamblers who are willing to throw a lot of money, money that they don't even have, down on just crazy, ridiculous bets. Um, And this was really, I thought, Sandler's perfect role. Uh, A New York-based jeweler, uh, in the film, he, he's Jewish and he interacts with the Jewish community a lot. Um, you know, Sandler's just, he's very good at those roles where he gets to be a big talker. And Uncut Gems is certainly that, you know, that case where Sandler's dialogue and, and his behavior, like you said, he's a family man. The interactions with his family, the interactions with his work associates, you know, Sandler just does a great job of portraying a lot of apathy, you know, towards aspects of his life that the Safdie brothers wanted to de-emphasize. But then, you know, this also almost insane lust for sports gambling that really, it's just such a dynamic performance. And it's such a shame that he wasn't nominated for best actor. Yeah. This is definitely one of those uh, films that kind of spirals, as Pete said, you're never comfortable and you have this sense that the protagonist is not going to succeed in the end, but you're still rooting for him to succeed because he is the protagonist. And that's really the only reason because you met, you meet the character of, of Sandler and, and you follow him as the film goes, you're rooting for him. Although he is the, the downfall of himself. He he's his own destructive force and sports gambling is just the means by which he does that. On top of that, he's just a greedy guy. But the, just the levels of despicableness in this film are, are pretty staggering. And I think the screenplay, which was lauded as one of the best elements of the film by critics, that, that was what sold me and that was what, that was what brought out the, the true um, mastery from Sandler. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to bring up that the Safdie brothers in their movies, they do, bring up, they do implement a lot of actors who aren't actually actors. Uh, and especially in good time, a lot of the actors were just native New Yorkers that they like kind of loosely auditioned or they knew them from previous uh, projects and such. And they just put them in the movie. I know the two curly headed guys that uh, that are trying to get the money from Howard, like those two guys are just the people that the Safdie brothers have known for like 20 years or something who like don't have any acting credits. Uh, Keith William Richards is his name. He's the the main kind of goon so to say that guy is like one of the scariest motherfuckers i've ever seen 
Like that, he is just so threatening. That guy. If that guy came out to me, I would run away. Like, and he was talking shit to me, I would just run. Like he is. That man is so scary, and it's crazy how he's not an actor. Like he just played it so well, uh, as well as Kevin Garnett's performance. I thought Kevin Garnett put forth a really great performance. Uh, something from athletes that you know when you put an athlete in a movie and they're kind of playing themselves. You're cut, they're cut, they're like not very good, you know. But I thought Kevin Garnett did it in a way that felt supernatural, and I was like, "Whoa! Like this is weird because this is Kevin Garnett, and he's playing Kevin Garnett." So, so of course it was natural, Pete. <laughs> Hopefully it would be. Hopefully, like p- sometimes people playing themselves is like really, really bad, and it just doesn't work. But in this movie, it really did. Yeah, you're right. I love it because their movies just build and build and build and build. Like, there's no one key part in the middle of the movie where you're like, oh, that was the best part. You know, typically, like, with Good Time and Uncut Gems, the part that you most remember is the ending because the entirety of the film is about building suspense to that moment. You know, and from those two films, the ending isn't satisfying. And and that's what kind of adds to the tension and disturbing nature of the films in general you definitely it doesn't feel like a win it just feels like you're looking at some of the worst aspects of humanity Uh, you know and that's definitely the main message that you can take away from either film that you know there's definitely a lot of misguided people out there i think the safty brothers and our next example uh the director of our next two films we're going to talk about ari aster have probably been the two examples of why A24 is different than any other production company in Hollywood and why what A24 is doing is probably um, the most important thing a Hollywood production company can do going forward. They, they give directors complete creative freedom and they bring on a lot of uh, under, underheard of directors and directors that they're just trying to give a chance to ensure it does create some bad movies, but in some cases they've given directors like the Safdie brothers and Ari Aster complete hit factories. Um, and both those directors are probably going to go on to win best director awards at the Oscars in their careers and, and maybe some best picture wins too. We'll see. That's a very, very bold claim. <laughs> want to be careful making those claims. <laughs> we make bold claims here. So, also, I wanted to bring up uh, that the Safdie brothers have an incoming series that they're collaborating with Nathan Fielder on. If either you're familiar with the show Nathan For You, uh, just such a f- underappreciated show. It's on Hulu. It was originally on Comedy Central. It's kind of a spoof of uh, Marcus Labonis's The Prophet, uh, where he just kind of gives these outlandish sort of ideas for businesses to profit. but it's such a funny show. And so Fielder's collaborating with the Safety brothers for that series. And it's going to be like an HGTV spoof. And I'm so excited for that. So we'll see what the Safety brothers do next. Interesting. So um, are we ready to kick off the discussion of Hereditary? Yes. Hereditary is the debut film from director Ari Aster, who is another A24 director. And, and has become known for a different genre completely, the horror genre, which is a really hard genre of films to master. But I would I would say that Hereditary is 
consistently considered one of the best horror films of the past uh, decade, at least. And the plot is described as a grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. And that is, that is not, that is a really broad plot, but that is a perfect description of the film. It, it's, it's completely AWOL of a film. It, it includes weird performing actors and it takes horror to a new level, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. It's this kind of creep under your skin throughout the entirety of the movie. You know, take a twist on such an important institution of humanity, which would be the family in this case, you know, and then completely turn it on its head and, and throw you for a loop. You never know what to expect in Ari Aster's films. Um, just all around very disturbing movie. I thought personally that it was an Oscar snub, at least for Tony Collette. I thought she should have been nominated uh, for Best Supporting Actress. She plays a fantastic mother in the film. Um, but yeah, it, Hereditary, it, it, it's a blend of traditional horror with, like I said, this more kind of institutional, cultural horror. You know, that is community and family and you know, sibling relationships and, and parent-child relationships and just kind of ruins all those things for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and like other A24 movies, this this film does deal with religion as well uh, and sort of cults in a way, uh, or Ari Aster has implemented that in both of his movies. Uh, it's just a big thing that A24 does. They're not afraid to delve into religion and they do it very very well i think personally yeah I, I completely agree with you there pete um it does get really into religion without addressing a mainstream religion and it uses the religion to amplify the horror of the film which is incredibly unique and, and brings about another climactic ending um just like the safties films this one seems to only lead to the inevitable climactic ending and then the film kind of ends and you're not comfortable in the narrative and in that way it's further a psychological thriller on top of being a horror thriller yeah and i i mean on that point i think you know like i said this kind of creep under your skin horror that aster is so good at is because it literally in every moment of the film there are small details, you know, being put into place that come into effect later that, you know, you might not notice at first or you might not think they're important, but, you know, he takes a lot of these small details and these small plot aspects that you're supposed to be paying attention to throughout the movie, you know, in both Midsommar and Hereditary. And then at the end, you know, it all kind of culminates into what really was sort of a clear plot all along that, you know, just you have to dig for, um, you know, and if, you know, you're never ready in Ari Aster's films for the ending. I, they're always just so creative and so shocking. And that, you know, that's certainly hereditary for you. And one, if I had one word to describe this movie, it would be shocking. It is unlike, any other horror film you know i've ever seen in terms of just creepiness 
Yeah, yeah, you do you do get that sense that something's very, very off early on in the movie, uh, especially with the daughter. Alex Wolf, uh, who's mainly, he's in the Naked Brothers band, uh, kind of a Nickelodeon band of the early 2010s. Uh, his, his brother's Nat Wolf, he puts forth a great performance in this. He's kind of known as like, the John Green, he kind of does like John Green movies and stuff, but I think he really deterred from that for this role. Uh, he plays the son who's kind of like a stoner and uh, he kind of, there's this one distinct part in this movie where he puts forth really, really phenomenal acting at a key part in the movie as well. Uh, I just wanted to mention that. You know, a lot of people, I, I wanted to ask you guys what you think of the prevailing metaphor of like the the tiny house building, like you know how the mother's job in Hereditary, you know, is to build like miniature sculptures of like houses and you know in rooms and houses and stuff. And a lot of critics address that as a prevailing metaphor in Hereditary, you know, talking about how throughout the entirety of the plot, the characters are all pretty much being played, just like little miniature figurines. Yeah, I also think it's. I also think it's kind of like she, her character can manipulate like her make-believe family, like this little family. But in the in the series of the plot, she's not really managing her family. Like bad things just keep happening to them, and I mean that's definitely not her fault. But whereas she can control what she does with the miniatures, she can't control what she's what is happening in real life. That is clearly supernatural. So I think it also represents that. Just to uh, touch on that, with a completely sidetrack thing, I found a letterbox review that I think is hilarious that can maybe take us from the, the dark aspects of this conversation. The, this reviewer, Beck, says, if anyone ever clicks their tongue around me again, I'm calling the police, and then has a tag that says it's Xanax o'clock. Um, and that's a pretty perfect review for this film because one of the early initial noises that comes up later throughout the film is the clicking of the tongue, which adds to the suspense and, once again, makes you uncomfortable. So that was Ari Aster's featured directorial debut. He knocked it out of the park, followed it up with our next movie, which is Midsummer, which came out in 2019. And the plot is a couple f travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Again, directed and written by Ari Aster. It stars Florence Pugh, uh, who was nominated for Little Women. Jack Rayner. Uh, Jack Rayner, also, he's a cinephile. Uh, there's some film website, and Jack Rayner puts forth movies and like lists. Uh, also has Wilhelm Blomgren, a uh, Swedish actor. William Jackson Harper, who is in The Good Place, and Will Poulter, who is, he's done so much, uh, also starring in it. And it's available on Amazon Prime Video as well as Hereditary. They're both available on Amazon Prime Video. But um, you do want to note that A24's entire catalog was just um, bought, well, at least leased to Showtime for the next few years. So... After their contracts expire with Amazon Prime, Midsummer and Hereditary will both soon be on Showtime as well. Okay, wow, that's good to know. Uh, yeah, Showtime. Showtime's. I've, I've been seeing that Showtime's been getting a lot of movies 
Uh, I know in terms of A24, I know Enemy and Waves were already on Showtime, but I mean, they're even adding more. So go out and get your Showtime subscription. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I understand, I think A24 will be exclusively on Showtime. It will. For the next two years, it's a two-year contract. Um, And if you're a student listening to this, I'd recommend the Spotify uh, Showtime Hulu deal. Yeah, that that's that's undefeated, man. That that deal is insane. Especially if you like A twenty four, it's going to be exclusively on Showtime. Anyway, I just want to say Will Will got me into this film, and this is one of the primary reasons I asked him to come on the the podcast because I love this film so much. Uh, it's another extremely unconventional horror film with with great performances. And this picturesque beauty that offsets the horror yet also amplifies it. Um, Will, thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, thank you for bringing me on to this podcast, you know, specifically for Midsummer. I, I love Midsummer. I could talk about it all day. It was easily one of my favorite films of 2019. I would put it in my top three of the year, um, along with Joker and 1917. But I just think what... Ari Aster did well in Hereditary. He did so much better in Midsummer. I thought it was an all-around better cast, you know, led by the starring female Florence Pugh. Um, I thought it was an all-around better story. It made a little bit more sense. It wasn't as supernatural. It, it was very believable in terms of something that could happen in society. Uh, so in that way, it's just super, super creepy. And from the beginning of the film, you just get hit with tragedy. And it just it just keeps happening. You never know when to expect it. Um, you never know what's really going on. You know, Aster drops you hints along the way. But, you know, you're never really quite sure until the end. And when that ending comes, it's, you know, arguably more shocking than hereditary. Because it, it's almost portrayed as kind of happy it i thought it was gorgeously beautiful and you know as john just said the beauty set against this kind of folk horror of this cult society that you know our main characters are thrust into it it's just stunning and yeah i'm so upset that ari aster isn't doing any more horror movies or at least he claims that he's not because he smashed midsummer out of the park no, no. Okay, so it was just announced that Joaquin Phoenix may be hopping on to Ari Aster's next project. So we'll see where that goes. That's just gossip around the film community at this point, but we'll see. Uh, but Midsummer, I want to get back to Midsummer. Just visually, such a beautiful film. Uh, like the the dress, uh, even just where they are, the Swedish vibe of it, and the way it's shot, it's just beautiful. But also, they tie in some visual effects as well uh, that make it very unsettling. So, you, like like John was saying, you, the setting definitely amplifies the horror as well as just makes the film beautiful. The interesting thing about this, which is unlike any other horror film that I've seen, is that you're lured into this kind of utopian society. The reason that the characters want to go is because it's... It's this Swedish festival that they've been brought to by what they thought were their friends. And it comes off as a utopia. And to the people living in it, 
it is a utopia, but to the outsiders, it's horror because there's death and there's just animalistic behaviors in this, I'll call it a cult, that, you know, they all dress in white and, and it's, it seems so beautiful, but to anyone that's not in the community, it is horror. And you either, you, you decide as the film goes on whether you want to take it as a beautiful film or a horror film, because if, if you see it as the characters becoming a part of this utopia, then it's actually quite a beautiful film. And, and as Will said, the ending is happy in a sense. Yes, I mean, certainly, especially, you know, due to the character development of Florence Pugh throughout the film, you know, which almost suggests a sort of happiness because she is this kind of, you know, lost person in terms of her family's destroyed in the initial segment of the movie. Her relationship is kind of in turmoil the whole time. I mean, you know, her and her boyfriend play the main two characters. And I, I think in a way, the movie is a metaphor for their relationship. And, you know, a lot of critics have agreed with that statement. Um, so I, certainly there's a lot of other metaphors at play. Uh, you know, like Hereditary showed the family very well. I, I think this is a great example of another like type of cultural horror you know as john just discussed it, it's almost like a folklore horror um but again it's just he what he does so well is just the slow details that that creep under your skin you, you let down your guard for a second and then something crazy happens and then you let down your guard again and something crazy happens you just you never know what to expect it's just, it is certainly a long ride on the edge of your seat. Uh, and I'm hoping his next couple of films can capitalize on that same sort of strategy. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, like you said, with the relationship, I've heard, I've also heard from critics that this is a breakup movie. You know, it's, it's, it's not really a horror movie. It's a breakup movie. And when it comes down to it, the relationship between Pew and Rainer's character you see it really digress throughout the movie, and then you get that sudden crescendo at the end. Ultim I'm not going to spoil it because we don't want to spoil anything, but you'll see. It's And you just see the deterioration. And also, it picks up at times. So you're not really sure what their relationship's going to be at the end of the movie, but that's really the, the main focus of the movie. The side characters are kind of just there to show like the American... like. Americans, if they would go into this society, how they would be impacted. Unlike Hereditary, in which I was uncomfortable the whole time, in this film, I was comfortable being uncomfortable just because, you know, there'd be a little horror and I'd be shocked. But then the next thing you know, it's right back to the beautiful Swedish, Swedish countryside and, you know, the, the homemade goods and, and the delicious food and the psychedelics. The psychedelic, yeah, it's just great. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the visual effects in this movie. You know, just beyond the shots of the beautiful landscape, like, it, it's very indicative of how the characters are feeling. You know, the visual effects, that is. Um, you know, for example, I think they do a great job of, like, showing how the characters are feeling when they're on these drugs that they're handed the screen's very wavy and the cinematography kind of captures, you know, the character's point of view in, in these most 
shocking situations very well. And that brings us to uh, what we're calling the the fiery feces flick of the week, which, unlike the last uh, few films that we discussed, absolutely has no substance to it. And you know, this is this is my favorite feature of the podcast. Uh, we're going to, for the next ten minutes or so, be going in on what we all agree is one of the worst movies we've ever seen, and an example of. Uh, how A24 can fail in its uh, way of giving directors complete creative freedom. It, the movie is called A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, and the plot is a graphic designer's enviable life slides into despair when his girlfriend breaks up with him. Uh, go for it, guys. This movie sucks. Uh, dude, uh, all right. I just wanted to mention it's directed and written by Roman Coppola, the son of Francis Ford Coppola. Definitely some nepotism here because this man fucking sucks at making movies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it stars Charlie Sheen, Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, Patricia Arquette, Aubrey Plaza, Dermot Mulroney, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Just that's a crazy cast, uh, and it's available on Showtime. But what the what the cast has in clout and success doesn't show in the movie. Uh, just, just like John was saying, a bad movie, uh, classic Charlie Sheen role, I will say. He's kind of just like a sleazy drunk, uh, just plays Ch- Charlie Harper and himself. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, I mean, he's, Jason Schwartzman pretty much just plays the same role in every movie. He's kind of like the sidekick character, as well as Bill Murray. Uh, yeah, this, it was, this was a very confusing movie to follow. Because it kind of just randomly hopped to flashbacks in the life of Charles Swan III. It just flashed back and then went to present, went to a different time, went to a different time. And there was really no flow to it. I mean, like, I didn't, uh, never throughout the movie did I get any sense of, like, you know, what the director was trying to convey. It just seemed like a vanity project for Charlie Sheen. Like, I mean, the whole movie, it's just filled with, like, gratuitous nudity that doesn't have a point you know that's usually a bad sign sign of a film if there's a lot of nudity and there's no point attached to it um just all the elements you never know where the character's at there's so many you know different flashbacks and scenes of of imagination it i mean i i guess it it was a glimpse into the mind of charles swan the third but I don't know why we needed to see the mind of Charles Swan III because it's pretty fucking boring. Yeah, it's not even like he's like a prominent figure in society. He's he's just a he just owns a graphic design company. Like he's just a graphic designer. Like it's like he's just a normal person. It's like it's like the secret life of Walter Mitty, where it just focuses on like just a normal person, but just does it so poorly. Like the secret life of Walter Mitty, I consider to be a really slept on film. And it, it's very similar to this, where it's like you you go into his imagination, and you come back out. But that that unlike this one, that one was made well. And Roman Coppola, I don't know what else he's done, but after watching this, I really don't have respect for him. Hey hey hey, he was a great great writer um, for the one Wes Anderson film, Moonrise Kingdom. Okay okay okay, that's it that's it. He's he just comes from like the biggest Hollywood family, so he's he's gonna get stuff. So, I mean, his sister, father, and grandfather are all great directors. 
Yes, he he failed to get the gene of a good director, and and you know I was just actually going to touch on that point. He did write a Wes Anderson film, but this review I found I think sums it up. This is what happens when you think you're Wes Anderson, but you're not. He's not Wes Anderson. I don't know how he managed to get so many of Wes Anderson's most beloved actors. And sure, he took some elements of Wes Anderson's films, although he took the wrong elements and butchered it. This film, I would like to say the one good aspect about it is that it's original. Sadly, I cannot say that because this film is not original. It's trying to copy the style of Wes Anderson, which only Wes Anderson can pull off. And maybe any other director can pull off at least a better version than this. It was terrible. Um, and I think it's just, it's kind of like a movie about Charlie Sheen, who... Yeah, it's literally just the Charlie Sheen biography. Like, this is... Oh, my God. Who's fucked up, and, he, you know, he's had some good roles in the past, but no one wants to see Charlie Sheen, especially since the year, like, 2000. I don't, I don't know. He's kind of irrelevant now, so... Ever since, ever since winning, <laughs> ever since that video, no one wants to see Charlie Sheen. Uh, also, the ending of this movie, I don't give a shit about spoiling it because it sucks. Uh, so the ending, it's just like, I'm Charlie Sheen and I played Charles Swad. And you're like, what? Like, what is going on? Like, this, is, this, this doesn't happen in movies. <laughs> I don't get how you can take a movie, put Bill Murray in it, and just make it not funny. Like, like none of the dialogue was creative at all. The acting performances of the characters just seem weird. And, like, I mean, clearly it was a pretty good cast. I, I, I think the screenplay was just awful. Like, they were just given terrible direction. Yeah, it also seemed like kind of like a table read where they weren't entirely familiar with the material. And they didn't really give that much emotion into it. Uh, any of the characters, for that matter. Well, I mean, how do you how do you portray a character and like try to develop a character that that really doesn't have any substance to them? Like all of the characters were really only in the film because of their relation to the Charles Swan character, um, you know, and and they all play people, significant people in his life. But you know, you don't even know like. Throughout the entirety of the film, you don't really have a sense of who Charles Swan is. You just see, like, you know, all the women and what his job is. You you don't really get any aspects of actual, you know, substantive character development. And it's just really hard if you're an actor to connect to anything, you know, if there's nothing to connect to. It's like a charity table read in which the actors right before reading discover that the charity's fake. And they do their best to make the read as terrible as possible and try to make the charity as little money as possible. In this case, I guess the charity would be A24. And they entrusted their uh, event to uh, Roman Coppola, who managed to uh, butcher it in a truly fashionable manner. Um, this this film did have some some nice visual effects that were wasted on... Uh, I don't know, just silly scenes, I'll call them. Completely irrelevant scenes. And yeah, this this film, which Will told me was A24's first film, seems like, seems like 
a completely uncharacteristic debut for an otherwise extremely successful production company. Yeah, I I had never heard about this movie, and I'm glad I didn't. Uh, sorry, sorry, Pete. <laughs> no, I mean I I'm I'm really glad that we're covering it because I think people should know that A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan the Third is a really bad movie. Like this is this is a really bad movie. It has the name Coppola attached to it. Like you see that, but it's not a good movie. This reminds me of. If you, if anyone watches Succession out there, uh, the son of the media sort of monarch in that movie is named Roman, and it's funny because Roman in that show can't live up to his father's expectations, and I feel like that's a great parallel for this movie because this Roman cannot live up to his father, Francis Ford Coppola, director of Apocalypse Now and Godfather, can't live up to his repertoire in any way, or even his sisters. Who's done well with A24. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she just released that one with Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, like On the Rocks, right? Yeah, and that and that was a decent film. Um, nothing hits the level. Anything of, of A24 I've seen so far, and you know, they don't have all great movies, but nothing hits the level of this film, and I don't think it's close yet in terms of a bad A24 thing. Granted, I haven't seen their entire filmography, but this has been considered their worst by... Uh, really any a24 lover out there i think you know i recommend that everyone listening to this podcast go and read roger a bear's review of the film um which is titled just a clip a click just a quick glimpse and then slam the ears and it was a one star out of four and i'd love to read just the first tiny little paragraph of it in which a bear says a film is a terrible thing to waste for Roman Coppola to waste one on a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan III is a sad sight to behold. I'll go further. For Charlie Sheen to waste a role in it is also a great pity. It, like, this movie just kind of made me sad to see, like, all of these great actors and, you know, someone that you think would be a pretty competent director just do absolutely nothing. And, you know, there was no purpose to the movie I didn't really think there was any intrinsic value in watching it unless you really, you know, are a huge Charlie Sheen fan and, you know, want to see him be around a bunch of attractive women. But yeah, there was, just, there was nothing that I could take out of this film. And, and I wanted to watch, I wanted to stop watching it about 10 minutes in. It's a reminder that nobody's perfect. And um, even some of the greatest in Hollywood can make bad projects. However, this takes it to a whole new level. Uh, and the reason we are putting this out here is, once again, to implore you to not waste your time on it. Because although you may think this this uh, our commentary on this film is funny, it truly is that bad. And we're, we're serious that you shouldn't waste your time on it because you'll just kind of be sad afterwards. I'm never going to watch it again. And frankly, I don't know if I'm going to touch any of Roman Coppola's stuff anymore. If he was allowed to do anything else after this. Yeah, and also I wanted to mention, like, when you have these huge, successful comedic actors like Charlie Sheen and Bill Murray, and you're just not you're just not utilizing it. Like that that is such a poor decision by a filmmaker. They they have made their careers off of comedy. Like they have such prolific comedic roles, and you're just wasting it on this on this character, Charles Swan, who's just kind of this drunk and 
he, he doesn't really have any comedic moments in the movie. Sorry, I'm ranting. But, ah, uh, damn it, Coppola, why? <laughs> why, Coppola, why? Get the fuck out of the film industry. Jesus Christ. Man, it's, it's just a waste of money. This film only grossed $200,000. Oh, I'm surprised. I'm, I would think it would be like 50000 maybe less, but just a waste. A waste of an artistic endeavor. So that that just about uh, wraps up our podcast for the day. Uh, William, thank you very much for coming on. I think you've lended us uh, some valuable insight into A24 films. A24 has an incredibly deep catalog, by the way which, as we said, you can see on Showtime in the upcoming months. And, yeah, they have a lot of good films. So. We'll definitely have more A24 episodes in the future. Oh, yeah, at least five installments. We can bring on Will for more of these, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to be on the uh, on the show again. It, it was truly an honor to be here. I, I love discussing film with both of y'all. Well, thank you very much, Will. Um, everyone stay safe out there and uh, have a good one. See you next week.